0: With whom there is no change nor shadow of alteration. When the spirit of truth is come, he will teach you all truth. The Council of Trent, based on the readings for today's Mass, would have us talk about the fourth mark of the church, apostolic succession. What do we mean by the four marks of the church? Well, just a quick review. By the four marks of the church, we mean that if we want to find the true church that Christ founded, there are certain things we should look for. Specifically, there are four marks of the true church which together distinguish her from every other church. The four marks of the true church, by which we can be sure that it is the church founded by Christ, are stated in the creed which is said every week at Mass. The church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. If we find a church with all four of these marks, we can be certain that that is the church which was founded by Christ for the purpose of carrying on the work of his incarnation through the centuries. Why should we look for those marks and not others, and what the other three marks are and and how we recognize them? That is material for another time. It should be obvious, however, that the church founded by Christ should also descend to us through the apostles and therefore teach what the apostles taught. That's only logical. To find the church that, that our Lord founded, we would look for one that teaches what he taught. And how do we know what our Lord taught? Well, because it was told to us by the apostles. Reliable witnesses to the events of Christ's life and the beginning of the church founded by Christ. So that's what we mean when we say that the church founded by our Savior, Christ himself, whilst he lived and was personally present here on earth, is an apostolic church. It is passed on to us by the apostles. So we'll take an example, a pretty glaring example, of, of the problem with disregarding this, uh, this, uh, this, this mark. And then we'll apply it to others as well. But the Mormon faith, they make a glaring error in their belief based on exactly this point. They teach that there was a great apostasy, a total falling away from the true faith taught by, the, by our Lord and the Apostles. And this apostasy supposedly occurred in the year 100, and it lasted until 1820, when the angel Moroni finally revealed again true teaching, this time to Joseph Smith. Why is this error so obvious? Well, because we have writings that date back to the first centuries of the church, from the apostles and their disciples, If true teaching were lost for 1,700 years, all we would have to do to make sure that we got it back is when we see the new teachings to compare it to what was taught in the first century and and, and compare what was taught in the first century to what was taught in the 19th century. But when we do that, we see right away that what Joseph Smith taught, beginning in 1820, bears no resemblance to what Christ and the apostles taught in the first and second centuries. So clearly the Mormon church cannot claim to be the one true church founded by Christ. The same test can be applied to other churches claiming to follow Christ today. Compare what they teach here and now to what Christ taught 2,000 years ago. If they are not the same teachings, then that church cannot be the church founded by Christ. And again, how do we know what Christ taught? Because it came to us through the apostles. If they're not teaching what Christ taught, this is not then an apostolic church. If we look for a church today that teaches what Christ and the apostles taught in the first two centuries, that brings us unquestionably back to the Catholic church. So the label apostolic is important for finding the church that Christ founded, the church that teaches apostolic teachings. Now, not only is it important for this church to be apostolic because it has the same teachings as the apostles, but also because it was to the apostles It was to the apostles that Christ made his promise to be with them always until the end of time. Of course, we can think of our Lord present on the altar, being with us until the end of time. But how is that possible? Because there are priests to make him present on the altar. That means the priesthood has to last until the end of time. If there's one church to which Christ made this promise, why would someone else, why would you want to join another church? Surely Christ cannot fail. Would you want to be in a church that didn't have this promise? The one promise of not failing till the end of time. Not even failing, but lasting till the end of time. There are two ways in which we mean that the Catholic church cannot fail. First, it cannot cease to exist as long as God remains with the church which Christ said would be until the end of time. And it cannot fail in teaching what is true, because the Spirit of God is upon it. Does that mean that every ordained, every word that comes out of every ordained minister's mouth is error-free? Well, certainly not. Specifically, the Spirit of God protects the vicar of Christ, the Holy Roman Pontiff, the Bishop of Rome, from erring in matters of faith and morals when acting in his role as the universal pastor, confirming the brethren and teaching all the faithful. And those ministers teach infallibly who teach in union with the vicar of Christ. Finally, apostolic means that each and every ordained minister of the one true church can trace his ordination back to one of the twelve apostles. In John, chapter 20, verse 21, we see, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. This is what an apostle is, someone who is sent. Christ sent the twelve, and then St. Paul. And St. Paul himself talks about handing on the office of bishop to Timothy and to Titus. And he instructs Timothy to hand it on to others as as necessity requires, and only to those whom he finds suitable. Just there, in one sentence, Paul makes makes reference to four generations of bishops. Peter, who ordained him, Paul himself, Timothy, and those whom Timothy is to ordain. And St. Paul wrote this while many of the other apostles were still alive. If he were doing something wrong, don't you think that they would have stopped him? Don't you think somebody would have corrected him and said, No, you're not supposed to hand this on. It ends with you. But nobody did. Look a little more closely at Scripture. Matthew 28. I am with you all days, even to the consummation of the world. How is that possible? Was he with with Peter and the apostles in one way, making them infallible, but in later generations he would not be? He was with them in some other way? Is it likely that those who knew and heard Christ personally would need an infallible guide more than those who lived centuries later? It would seem to be just the opposite. If he's promising to be with the apostles, why would he then abandon generations later on who would need him even more? The apostles heard him with their own ears. 1 Corinthians indicates that being an apostle is a job in this new church founded by Christ. That is, it's an established office, not a one-time deal for this particular person. It says, And God indeed hath set some in the church first, apostles, secondly prophets, third doctors, after that miracles and the graces of healing helps governments, kinds of tongues interpretations of speeches, he's listing offices it belongs to some in the church the and actual, the actual apostles act as though they believe this office is to be handed on first chapter of Acts of the Apostles we see the election of Matthias The apostles went to great lengths to make sure that they were invoking the Holy Spirit, that they were doing God's will. But they did, in fact, replace one of the apostles, Judas, whose apostasy was foretold in Psalm 108. And the word used in the psalm is, another shall take his bishopric. 1 Timothy And keep in mind that as Paul himself was ordained by another, Paul says in 1 Timothy, A faithful saying, If a man desire the the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. He says plainly, it is an office, not a person. It is an office in this church. This church against which the gates of hell shall not prevail. And thus, in Titus... 1.5. For this cause I left thee in Crete, that thou should set in order the things that are wanting, and should ordain priests. Notice he does not say preachers. Ordain priests. Why is that an important distinction? Because preachers just preach. Priests offer sacrifice. You should ordain priests in every city, as I also appointed thee. 2 Timothy, and the things which thou hast heard of me by many witnesses, the same commend to faithful men who shall be fit to teach others. He's specifically telling Timothy, whom he has ordained a bishop, to pass this on. 1 Timothy, let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the faithful in word, in conversation, in charity, in faith, in chastity. Till I come, attend unto reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Neglect not the grace that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the imposition of the hands of the priesthood. That's a whole other topic, the laying on of hands. We'll see the importance of that in just a minute. You're getting the point here? The priesthood, to teach, to rule, to sanctify, is passed on from one to another. And this was intended to be by the apostles themselves. Who is anybody else to say that there was a time when that should end? The apostles clearly in their own lifetimes were passing this gift on. Is it up to Martin Luther to say that it ended with them? 1400 years after the death of Christ, after the death of the last apostle, somehow he knows better? Apostolic succession. If your church doesn't have it, then your church doesn't have Christ. It's only through the apostles that we know that that what we have is the teaching of God himself, and therefore the only sure and safe way to heaven. The imposition of hands. 1 Timothy, Neglect not the grace that is in thee that was given thee by prophecy with the imposition of hands of the priesthood, for which cause I admonish thee that thou thou stir up the grace of God which is in thee by the imposition of my hands. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy again, For God hath not given us this spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of sobriety. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but labor with the gospel according to the power of God, who hath delivered us and called us by his holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the times of the world but is now made manifest by the illumination of our Savior who hath destroyed death and hath brought to light life and incorruption by the gospel, wherein I am appointed preacher and an apostle and teacher of the Gentiles. This is God's choice to use these men to pass on his message. First Timothy, Impose, hands not, impose not hands lightly upon any man, neither be partaker of another man's sins. He tells him to impose hands. Just do it carefully. Careful who you're ordaining. Now let's talk about the Pope specifically. Where does he fit in apostolic succession? Well, he's the bishop of Rome. Certainly he fits into the line of apostolic succession. He is specifically the successor of Peter, the first bishop of Rome. Matthew 16, 18 and John 21, 15. They go together. Matthew 16 is the promise that Peter is to be the first pope. John 21 is the actual crowning, his coronation, installing him in office. Matthew 16, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I give to to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind upon earth, it shall be bound also in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose upon earth, it shall be loosed also in heaven. Peter's given a special mission. And then he's told to go and fulfill that mission in John chapter 21. Remember, feed my lambs, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Who is the shepherd? If we, know the, if we know our Old Testament, we know that God is the shepherd. Christ clearly claims that responsibility, and then he hands on that duty to Peter. John chapter 21. It's interesting that our Lord mentions keys. There's only one other place in Scripture that keys show up. And, of course, a good Jew, knowing his Scripture, would know that. Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two. 22. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim the son of Elias, and I will clothe him with thy robe. I will clothe him with thy robe. The prophet is passing this on. And will strengthen him with thy girdle and will give him thy power into his hands. And he shall be as a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will lay the key of the house of David upon his shoulder. And he shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. The power of governance is being given to this man. It's being passed from one to another. And it goes on to say that only God can bring an end to this dynasty. The Jews were well aware that this, the reference to keys meant a dynastic succession with the power of governance. Notice, he shall be a father. He shall be a father. Simon becomes Peter. Why is this significant for apostolic succession? Well Protestants want to claim that it is Peter's profession of faith that is the rock. Remember, Peter just said, Thou art Christ and upon that thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Christ in turn says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. So if it's his profession of faith, then our Lord goes on to say, I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom. He's going to give the keys to the kingdom of heaven to a profession of faith. Well, how is he suddenly changing pronouns here? One minute he's talking about the profession of faith, the next minute he's talking about Peter. Doesn't make sense. But the very name Peter means rock. Protestants will claim that the gospel was written in Greek, and we can see that Christ uses here the masculine for Petros, and the, for Peter's name, and the feminine for Petra, to refer to the rock that he's talking about. Well, you know what? That's how language works. If you're using the noun in a a masculine way, you can put a masculine ending on it. If you you use a noun in a feminine context, you can put a feminine ending on it. But that doesn't really matter, because Petros and Petra are Greek, which the gospel was written in. When our Lord said it, he was speaking Aramaic, in which case it's Kepha and Kepha. There's no change. Was Peter just another apostle? Well, surely not. No one else was given the keys a clear symbol of authority. Who else was given the job of being a shepherd in Christ's place? John 21. Incidentally, an interesting little tidbit, St. Peter's name is mentioned 191 times in the New Testament, in the Gospels. The other apostles altogether only show up 130 times. Peter's leadership. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, and thou, being once converted, confirm thy brethren. Why is that important? Well, here's where, here's where language does matter, because our, our Lord used different words specifically. Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Those two yous in the first part of this, this discourse are plural. Y'all. Okay? Satan has desired to have y'all. Okay? All y'all. All right? But in the second part of the discourse he's saying, I have prayed for thee, singular. So Satan, Satan wants to sift all of you. Christ is praying for One that when you are converted, you will confirm thy brethren. Clearly, Peter stands in a very special role to the entire flock. Acts chapter 15, Protestants will throw up at us that, see, James is the one that solves the problem. James James figures it out. Acts chapter 15 is the Council of Jerusalem. They're discussing, the the apostles are discussing whether or not the uh, Gentile converts need to follow the Mosaic Law when Peter speaks it's done what happens next is that James the bishop of Jerusalem where the council is being held explains how they're going to carry that out he's not giving a new teaching or a new decision he's explaining how Peter's decision is going to be implemented sort of the relationship we have today with the Pope and and the, the congregation for the doctrine of the faith for example it's the Pope's authority, it's the Pope's decision but the curia explains how it's going to be carried out. It doesn't mean that the cardinals are the ones making the decision. Protestants may use 1 Peter, the ancients, therefore, that are among you. I beseech you, who am myself also an ancient. They want to say, St. Peter's just making himself another one of the, the apostles, another one of the ancients. I myself am also an ancient. I'm sure there are plenty of people here who remember when Nixon came out with My Fellow Americans... Does it mean that, that he's not the president just because he's claiming to be also an American? It's just the way language is used. There's simple answers to, to silly objections. Protestants will say that the pope is not infallible. We point out that Paul corrects Peter for prudential errors, for not having a spine, for caving into pressure when he, when, he was, when he was put on the spot. Paul did not correct him for heresy, which is impossible for the pope. Peter is clearly different. Peter was appointed by our Lord above all the other apostles and is clearly himself an apostle. Apostle, Apostles have successors. Does it really make sense that our Lord would provide for the passing of apostolic authority, but not for specific papal authority? For where else do we turn for an infallible judgment? If sifting you all refers to the apostles, is it likely that Satan has stopped trying to sift the successors of the apostles? If he went after the apostles who were firm in their faith and knew Christ personally, do you not think he would go for generations later that didn't know Christ, whose maybe faith is not quite as strong? And if that's so, and our Lord prayed for one apostle above the others to be for the protector of them all, would it not make sense that that office, too, must continue? Otherwise, there is no one left to strengthen the brethren. If a rock was needed in apostolic times, how much more in times after? And where are those keys now? Is it with this bishop or that bishop? Clearly not. Bishops are not the arbiters of orthodoxy. Bishops and priests have founded some of the greatest heresies in history. Infallibility does not pertain to the bishops alone the power of the keys belongs to Peter and Peter alone and only those who are in union with him can speak infallibly when they speak what he speaks apostolic succession it matters without it we're just as liable to, fail, to failure as anyone else when our Lord says who hears you hears me he's speaking to a bunch of guys who for the most part are not real well educated They don't, I'm not saying they're dumb, don't get me wrong, but they're not fit to form the doctrines of the church, to defend them against the subtleties and the errors that they're going to face. He says, who hears you, hears me. Is our Lord really going to bind himself to the word of some fisherman? Only if our Lord is going to guarantee that that fisherman is speaking the truth. Without apostolic succession, we're just as liable to failure as anyone else. Without it, the Catholic Church could not have taught the same teachings for 2,000 years. You will not find another religion who has maintained, which has maintained the same doctrinal teachings for 2,000 years. Heck, you can't find one that's maintained the same teachings for 500 years. Islam couldn't maintain the same teachings for the lifetime of the founder, Without apostolic succession, we're just Bible readers who get to decide for ourselves what the words mean while deluding ourselves into thinking that it is the Spirit who is guiding us. Thank God for apostolic succession. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen.